Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 17th, 2023. When historians look back, I think, at the 20th and 21st century, they will conclude that the biggest story of all is the story of our relationship with nature. We've done lots of shows about how we tell that story. It's the trickiest, the great challenge of us because we're part of the story itself. We've done shows with historians and poets and polemicists, uh, even Harvard professors of literature. Uh, over the years, of course, many people have told the story very well. Darwin told it brilliantly in his own narrative. Of course, his origin of species is now a masterpiece, both in literary and scientific terms. But post-Darwin, perhaps, nobody has told the story in a more intriguing, elegant, and erudite way than a man called E.O. Wilson. Uh, he sadly lived a long, remarkable life. He died at the age of 92 a couple of years ago. But um, his legacy is still all around us. Um, he's even left words like biophilia, which I think is one of the most powerful words. He wrote a book about it, uh, our love, our human love of interacting closely with nature. One man who's been deeply influenced by E.O. Wilson is my guest today on the show. Richard Rhodes is one of America's great writers and biographers, writers on science and on technology. And he has a major, it's not a new uh, biography of uh, E.O. Wilson, Scientist, The Life of Nature, but it's just come out in paperback. And I'm thrilled that uh, Richard Rhodes is joining us from his home in Seattle. Richard, uh, would it be fair to describe, I mean, we can, of course, describe E.O. Wilson in many different ways. You describe him as a scientist, but is he ultimately a storyteller? And, and, and the story is our relationship with nature? Oh, very much so. Ed was born in the deep south, grew up there, and I think really absorbed the storytelling traditions around him. So he even wrote a novel, you know, it was something of a didactic novel, but, but it was a novel. So yes, very, very, very clearly, but also a superb scientist at the same time. What a combination. Writing a biography, of course, is a massive endeavor. Was this always one of your ambitions to write the story of E.O. Wilson's life? How did it happen that you chose this project? Ed and I were old friends. I first, met him when I was writing an article about rape for Playboy of all places and went to see him because I was curious to see if he thought there was any genetic advantage to the rapist in the possibility of reproducing in that brutal way. We had a lively discussion and the highlight was when he took me across the hall in his uh, offices in, in the Natural History Museum at Harvard, where he was a professor, and showed me the several million beetles that, yeah. that Alfred 
Kinsey had collected before Kinsey began collecting and putting on pins human beings. So we, we kind of bonded at that point. And, you know, I'm from the Middle West in America and uh, had something of a similar childhood in some ways to Ed's. So we really did find ourselves becoming friends. And we had always agreed we were going to do a biography at some point. And things began to get a bit late. I'm getting older and Ed was getting older and I realized it was time to do it. So that was the occasion for all this coming about. You euphemistically suggested that you and Edge shared a similar kind of childhood. Um, you both had very difficult childhoods. Did you sense that when you first met him, that here was a man who, whose story itself was in, in some ways like your own? I don't know if I sensed it there, but on the other hand, since we found ourselves, I think, liking each other from the beginning, we must have found something uh, vibrating in the background, if you will. Uh, but, but our, you know, our Middle Western Southern origins certainly fit. And the fact that he was a naturalist, which I'm certainly not, but on the other hand, I've always been interested in, in the natural world. So we did find things in common and particularly exploring a new problem together. What was the answer about rape? He said there's about a 5% possibility in terms of genetics that a rapist might be, might have a, a genetic advantage by, by being a predator of that particular kind, horrible as that is. So there was a bit of connection and it, it fit in with his larger work in sociobiology. And he was constantly recruiting supporters for his new and very controversial approach to, uh, to the larger world of human behavior and how much of it might be genetic. That was a battle royal with some of the, some of the more radical Harvard uh, Marxist scientists who didn't want to hear uh, anything about the possibility that human beings might behave or learn partly because of their genetic endowment rather than purely environmentally. The, 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 the Marxist project has always been to change humankind totally. And if some of our behavior is genetically based, then that isn't possible. So he had a final. I'm curious, what's Marxist? I, I'm always a little wary when people describe people they don't like as Marxist. What, what does that mean? Well, this was their own identification of themselves. Uh, people like Richard Lewontin and uh, others around the Harvard circle were trying to rewrite hard science, including biology, uh, in what they called a Marxist framework. I'm not sure I can tell you what that was, since I haven't really bothered to read their work, not believing that's a possibility. But, but at, at very least, they were profoundly uh, threatened by Ed's new perspective, which he basically took from his larger studies in biology of all the different levels of creatures. Uh, and to the extent that they wrote a famous letter to the New York Review of Books saying that his Ed's work led directly to the 
gas chambers and the death camps of the Nazis against the Jews. Uh, Ed was shaken by that when that happened. He was, he was then a young full professor at Harvard, but he was still feeling his way into the, the, the whole world of human sociology. And it took him a little while to recover, at which point it made him very angry and he defended himself as any good scientist does by citing the evidence that he had accumulated. So I'm not quite sure what they meant by Marxist other than that the belief that human beings are infinitely malleable. And like most species, like all species, no, we're not. We're somewhat malleable. Ed, as, as you said, was a, uh, perhaps an, an all too human figure, uh, an enormously erudite scientist, naturalist. He was also a good hater. You bring that out in the book, uh, in his um, in his relationship, if that's the right word, um, with um, with uh, um, uh, what's his name? I've forgotten. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm blanking here. With um, um, double helix man. Remind me, uh, Richard. Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. Uh, now I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for that senior moment. What are we talking about? What? Um, Watson. Yeah, Watson. Watson. So your, your book talks about this mutual an animosity between two of the most famous scientists of the 20th century, E.O. Wilson and James Watson. James Watson, of course, being with Francis Crick, uh, the man who uh, discovered if that's the right word, the double helix structure. You know, it's an interesting parallel with, uh, there was another great battle royal, but conducted on a much more uh, collegial level between Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr over issues in quantum physics. It's very interesting when two giants in the field, in a field, uh, <laughs> decide to go at loggerheads. But Watson was and is famously a uh, extremely outspoken and, and uh, arrogant man. I think arrogance is a fair word here. Not I, I know Watson, I knew him slightly, spent an evening one time drinking at a bar with him and discussing the sex life of the Kennedys. So we, we had a very pleasant, short relationship and I'm certainly impressed, as we all should be, as Ed himself was, with Watson's immense work with Crick in identifying the basic uh, structure of the molecule that patterns life. Ed, Ed certainly believed that that was the, the most important discovery of biology in the 20th century, and certainly didn't compare his own work to Watson's. But, Watson and Ed were appointed at the same time as young men to full professorship at Harvard. And when Watson arrived at the first faculty meeting of the department, I should say, he basically said, we don't need all you field biologists anymore. We can do it all in the laboratory now. You're just- These men have long memories, don't they? It's hard to imagine why men of such enormous erudition and intelligence yes also be so petty. 
we are talking yeah. um we are talking with Richard Rhodes, uh, one of America's great writers, who has a major new book out, a, a biography of uh, E.O. Wilson, uh, the great naturalist, scientist. Um, you mentioned um, that when you first met E.O. Wilson, uh, you were doing some work uh, on one kind of, uh, on, on, on sexuality. Um, you've, uh, he, he, of course, has written mostly, or he wrote mostly about nature, uh, but you've written books um, on all sorts of things, including human sexuality. Is that what ties you together in a sense? Are you, in an odd way, um, uh, Richard, an observer of people, particularly their sexuality, in the same way as uh, E.L. Wilson was an observer of, of ants or beetles? I would say not, since by far the majority of my 26 books have been about science and technology. But it's always been an interest of mine. And I happen to have ghostwritten a book with a California psychiatrist and his wife about how to extend orgasm. One of the desperate things I did when I was trying to fund the writing of my major book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. So I did have some interest on that side. And, and I guess that's after all where Ed and I first connected. But no, my, my interest was much more broadly in Ed's work in the natural world. And, and also just in Ed, he was an extraordinary human being. I, I enjoyed him as a friend. And it was, it seemed to me terrible that, of course, across this long life as someone who has frequently been called Darwin's successor, that he had not yet had a biography written. I think it was testimony to his controversial qualities. Ed liked to uh, throw bombs into his field to shake it up. He was not a scientist who spent his entire life focused on one single subject. He, in fact, was an example of a kind of human being, a very interesting kind of human being, who just continually grew across his entire life, intellectually and creatively, starting out with his work on ants, uh, the man who discovered how ants communicate. Uh, Everyone had thought that ants were talking to each other with their antenna when they bumped into each other on, on a trail. Ed slowly worked it out that they were in fact communicating by laying uh, a very dilute stream of a particular pheromone through a gland in their, in their uh, tail. And that once that trail was down, other ants would follow it to a more direct route to whatever food or so whatever the, the ant that laid the trail had found. Uh, he, his, his demonstration of that was spectacular. Once he identified the gland, he mashed up a number of them and took a little stick and touched it to the fluid and laid a trail from an ant nest out to a dead end. <laughs> when the first ant discovered that trail, the entire colony came boiling out of its nest, running up the trail and reached the end of the line and were totally bewildered because there was nothing there. 
So Ed said he spent the next three or four months just showing everyone in the his Harvard department this wonderful trick, trick he managed to put, pull off before he began to work farther. But he slowly moved from ants to the entire category of, uh, of external shell insects. And then he moved to mammals and primates. And inevitably at the end of that line would, was humans. He had not planned to write about human beings in his uh, major book on the subject, but how could he leave us out? So he really- Yeah, and not, not only how could he leave us out, but we're always reading, I think these biology books, whether it's by Wilson or by Darwin, trying to figure ourselves out. Do you think the world was ready for Wilson's theory on ants or beetles or did he make the world? Did he change the world or was the, the world um, already sympathetic to his take on nature? Well, his later take, I think, is something that's within the frame that we've all been concerned with for some time now, meaning, of course, the decline of nature as, as our very voracious species has taken over all the major niches in the world. But what people were not ready for, evidently, at least the, 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 the scientists who attacked him, was to apply the same uh, model of, of a mixture of, of free motion and uh, determined motion, as it were, to human beings. We've always struggled with the question, in fact, of all the great scientific revolutions in the past, Galileo and Copernicus and, and so forth, the one that's still controversial, at least in, in the United States, is, is Darwin simply because he suggested that we evolved in the same way that uh, the other major primates evolved when when there are many people who would still prefer to think that we're a separate creation of a divine being so ed, ed jumped into that uh, ant's nest or rat's nest as it were mm. when he introduced these ideas it's it's really quite interesting because Later on, after all this settled down a bit, after Ed had been pilloried and chased around and so forth, uh, there was a huge study that was done pulling together all of the studies of identical twins ever done across about 75 years of modern science. Ed had suggested in the end that probably 10% of our behavior is genetically determined, mostly in terms of how we learn things and so forth. Uh, this study with identical twins who could be, could be looked at and, and matched and compared, uh, found that about 48 or 49% uh, of human behavior is genetically based, a much larger figure than Ed would ever have suggested. So I think the issue is settled at this point, but it may not be settled for people who would rather not think of us as as having uh, automatic controls in, in some aspects of our lives. Ed wasn't suggesting that it determined, you know, how we spoke or anything so, so specific and culturally bound, but he was suggesting that it might influence the way we learn and, and other aspects along those lines. And I think that's pretty well been established at this point. 
We are talking with Richard Rhodes, the author of Scientist, E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor of this show, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. So all our guests are going to get an annual subscription, including Richard Rhodes. We're going to run a, a short ad, and then we'll be back with Richard to talk more E.O. Wilson uh, E.O. Wilson, uh, and we will also uh, talk a little bit of Oppenheimer at the end. I can't resist asking Richard whether he's seen the movie and what he thinks about it. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with the great Richard Rhodes, the author of E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. The book is called Scientist. Uh, Richard, the title of uh, the New York Times review of your book uh, described Wilson as the scientist who foresaw our troubles. Uh, he later wrote a book called The Social Conquest of Earth. Is that fair? Do you think he did foresee the troubles? And, 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 and what troubles did he actually foresee? It was looking more and more broadly at the life of species of various kinds in the world. Uh, one of his most remarkable experiments was actually finding a little island right off the coast of the Florida Keys, which the National Park Service gave him permission to fumigate, meaning to kill every bug on the island. And it was all bugs and spiders. No, no larger creatures had found their way out to this this uh, piece of, of basically swamp and, and Florida trees. So the problem then was how do you how do you fumigate an entire island? It was about forty yards wide uh, and, and roughly circular. Uh, they spent a lot of time he and the graduate student who was working with him going around to uh, uh, home fumigation services in in. Florida asking if they would take on the job and they all thought it was way too bizarre for their work. But he did found, find one man who was interested in it just because it was such a novel challenge. They tried various methods and finally succeeded in tenting over the entire island by putting basically a pole up in the middle and hanging a tent from the pole. So why was he doing this? Well, he was interested in how life finds its way to new land. Uh, a volcano arises in the Pacific, let's say, and basically emerges from the ocean sterile. And then in the course of time, birds land and fish come by and do what they do. And eventually the, the island becomes populated. Uh, but the sequence of how it's populated and how that population dips and rises with various challenges of, of weather and seasons and, and, and uh, hurricanes and so forth, 
and how ultimately it may or may not stabilize. These were all profound scientific questions that had to do not only with uh, the history of the world, but also increasingly as the natural environment of our world, for example, the Amazon forest, uh, the Amazon rainforest has been chopped up into pieces uh, because of people in those countries wanting to run cattle or whatever it is, uh, take logging. Uh, whether or not it's going to be, whether or not these pieces can sustain themselves, or if they need, for example, to have some kind of corridor connecting them. And that, in fact, was one of the outgrowths of Ed's work. He said, he told me, he said, I, I kind of figured the, the decline of species was taking care of itself until around 1980. The official word was that the decline of species was passing at the rate of about one species going extinct in the world per year. But he then saw some new data that indicated it was one species in the world per day. And at that point, Ed thought he had a duty to step in and contribute whatever he could contribute to, to reducing that that enveloping disaster, really. Ultimately, he ended up with the idea of what he called the, the half world, which is humans can sustain themselves very nicely, uh, 10 billion humans, which is what we're going to be by the beginning of the 22nd century, at which point we will evidently, according to predictions of, of the official agencies, uh, be at a steady state in terms of world population probably won't go above 10 billion. Many, as many will die as are born at that point. So what, what, is, what would it take to sustain us at a, at a high level of life? The answer seems to be about, about half of the world's arable lands. So Ed saw this as a, as a possibility. I don't know if he meant it to be metaphoric or factual, but the idea was we set aside half the earth's uh, wilderness uh, to keep it the way it is and let it go its own way forever. And we use the other half to live on. And that was kind of the last campaign in his life. So he followed his, his training and his knowledge as a scientist. As I said earlier, what fascinated me about him as a human being most of all was that he was constantly growing, widening his perspective in the world. His whole idea that we have a natural bond with nature that he called consilience, or, or uh, what is that word he used for the title of his book? Biophilia, that we, we have a natural love for the natural world. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I do know that there are many children who've never seen the natural world outside of a city, but Ed certainly had a natural love of nature that derived back to step back, derived from his rather lonely childhood. Richard, the New York Times, as I said, talked about Ed as the scientist who foresaw our troubles. I wonder if the troubles are a little bit more complicated than simply our destruction of nature. Two simultaneous other things seem to be going on, and, and I'm guessing that Ed had a particular interest in this. Firstly, the rise of smart machines and our ability, for better or worse, to outsource our intelligence to machines. And secondly, our changing way of thinking, not so much about nature, but other species, 
and indeed our quest to invent technology that will allow us to communicate with other species. Did Ed, and particularly in his work on sociobiology, did he think about in a broad historical sense this new age of what people call biotech? I don't think I remember ever discussing those issues with Ed, but I remember we were dealing with him at the very end of his career. He was at a point where he was writing books, I think, just because he was as he he was a self-admitted workaholic, and he'd kind of run out of science to do at that point. I mean, in the last five or ten years, he was writing books, letters to a young scientist, things that were pretty obviously more to amuse himself than they were anything else, although they were in fact popular books. Uh, I think he had reached a point where he was also an optimist. So he didn't think, he believed, I think with great conviction that clever species that we are, also destructive to be sure, but clever that we would find our way past these major uh, challenges that we face today, meaning decline of species and global warming, most of all. Those are the two that concern him the most. He saw us, and he writes about this in some of his later writing, as, as achieving steady state population, as finding a treatments of prevention for all the major diseases. And we're pretty well there by now with a few exceptions. Uh, square the circle of, of human violence and war. And then he wrote, and this is his deep sense of the tragedy of life. Then he wrote in his, one of his books on human nature is the book, which is a most magnificent book, probably for a general reader, the best thing in all of his canon. He wrote, and then somewhere down the road in the maybe the 22nd century, we will find ourselves with a great spiritual crisis again. And that will be the spiritual crisis, he says, of realizing that for all of our gifts, for all of our genius, for all of our successes, we in fact are simply another biological species. And beyond reproducing ourselves, have no place to go. There's no divine fiat there wasn't in his mind that was leading us towards some ultimate goal, some transcendent purpose. As far as he was concerned, we were, we were members of the primate kingdom reproducing ourselves. So he had a deeply tragic sense of life underneath all of his optimism and his love of the natural world. Uh, and I would say also his love of people. He was a very warm and friendly human being, even though he was also a very isolated human being. He said to me once, I'd be happy to spend 360 days out of 365 entirely alone out in the natural world. I think that speaks to his having grown up alone as an only child and, and not very much at home. A home was a place of conflict. He spent most of his time out in the woods or on the seashore, and he loved it from the very beginning. 
his yeah, father, father was an alcoholic who committed suicide. Your book yeah. might have been called, it's called Scientist, E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. Do you think an alternative title might have been American Scientist? Was there something uniquely American about him, or is that uh, a rather flabby generalization? <laughs> no, he was a very American human being. I'm not sure his science, I mean, his science was universal without question. No, no one had done what he had done in his work on ants, for example. He certainly is the ant king of the world. Uh, in fact, he told me one time, every time he goes to a cocktail party, uh, someone always says, Dr. Wilson, I understand you're the world's leading specialist on ants, uh, and I have a question for you. And of course, the question always was, uh, I have ants in my kitchen. What should I do oh about it? <laughs> he needed one... to carry around some ant killer with him and just hand it over to him. <laughs> no, he would never say that. Well, for a long time, he advised. I don't know what he advised, but eventually he settled on the following. Uh, they like little bits of cake, and you can feed them little pieces of tuna. And then what you should do is simply <laughs> observe them. So, so... I think that gives you a sense of his sense of humor and his warmth. He yeah, was also yeah. also working very hard on preserving uh, some of the great national parks in Africa, and particularly in Mozambique. There's a huge national park that was almost destroyed by the floods that came over there a couple of years ago. And he had, in fact, the, the Mozambicans had built a, a, a scientific center in the middle of this wonderful national park named the E.O. Wilson uh, Nature Center, where, where young scientists, particularly young Mozambican scientists, because he very much believed that we shouldn't just jump in from other cultures, but help train the people in the culture itself, uh, could learn the kind of skills that he had to teach and his students had to teach. So he was active all over the place. Uh, he collected, he has a foundation. He, it collects money to do the kind of work on the uh, National The E.R. Wilson Foundation. Um, yeah. Committed to, well, it's called the E.R. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Uh, Ed, uh, no, I keep on calling, uh, I can't call you Ed. That was a Freudian error, right? Uh, Richard. <laughs> um, it, and this sort of connects with the, the question. As you say, this is the first major biography. You're also a friend of his. I'm not sure if he had the opportunity to read anything that you wrote before he died, but do you think there may be a problem with a friend writing a major biography? Well, of course, I felt I could be perfectly objective, but uh, it's probably one of the things Ed thinks is built in, that we have some bias toward those we, we value and, and a, a animus against those we don't. I didn't try to write a really a critical biography. I didn't try to, to whitewash him either. I just tried to tell his story. What's interesting is that Ed led an extremely private life. Uh, no one, I think, with a few exceptions, ever met his wife uh, outside of the very small circle of friends he had. He was not, so when I approached him to do his biography, he agreed on, on, and agreed that it would not be in any sense an authorized biography, provided that I allowed him to read the manuscript and correct any factual errors. Unfortunately, he didn't find any. 
when I was finally done because, of course, it was based on his documents. So, uh, but but the one thing that he had that I insisted that he let me read of his private life, as a as as a requirement for my writing the biography, when he was a young man, 25 years old, and a, and a junior fellow at Harvard, a very distinguished kind of category of graduate students who are allowed to do study whatever they want, basically. He was commissioned by the Harvard Museum of Natural History and given the funds to travel through the South Pacific, where ants had never really been collected, and also through Australia. And send back any new species that he found. And this remarkable trip came right at the big, at the time when he was preparing to marry uh, the woman who he did marry as soon as he returned. So he had to stay connected to her. He was afraid he'd lose her if, if he was gone for an entire nine, 10 months off in the middle of nowhere, really not even much able to do more than mail an occasional airmail letter. So they made a deal that they would write each other every day. And I wanted those letters and I knew he had them. And so he said, all right. And soon afterward, a box arrived at my home filled with this pile of unsorted and, and misfolded and bent and so forth, email those little blue email things that we used to mail around. And I took them all carefully apart and organized them by date and had them transcribed. And there was this remarkable story, not only of, of his day by day, almost minute by minute experience of collecting in all sorts of places, Papua New Guinea, I mean, up among the, the cannibals, if you will, uh, and so forth. Collecting, he, I think he identified a total of a thousand new species of ants, uh, including some of the really crazy ants that live in Australia. Big bulldog, as they're called, ants that will, won't back off if you approach them. They'll chase you down the road and bite you like a, like a wasp. People don't seem to realize that ants are, in fact, uh, evolved from a primitive wasp, That's, which is why a lot of ants have stings like the fire ants of the American South and of most of the world these days. So I had at least this picture. And of course, here also was the picture of a really wonderful and beautiful and evolving love between two people, both of whom were rather isolated people, but who found each other and were together for the rest of a very long lives. Uh, his wife died only a few months before he did which is one of those phenomena in the human world that's always fascinated me. How does that happen? How do we, how do we find ourselves able to die together? But it does happen quite often. Perhaps so, uh, John Powell's wrote a, a novel called The Collector, an alternative title to the book, Scientist Might Have Been the Collector. Indeed. He did indeed collect all over the world, constantly yeah, finding he found a new species of ant in a potted plant in the offices of one of the nature journals in New York one day when he was sitting with the editor. He looked over and looked at the plant and plucked up an ant, and it was an entirely new species. 
Well, you've uh, you've turned the tables in your new uh, in your book, which is just out in paperback. You've turned him into you've collected uh, E.L. Wilson, Richard Rhodes. <laughs> Richard, I can't resist finally asking you whether you've seen Oppenheimer, the movie uh, of the year. It's going to win, I'm sure, many uh, many. I was going to say Nobel prizes, uh, Oscars. Uh, you, of course, are perhaps best known for your book, The Making of the Atom Bomb, which won many, many awards, made your name. You've also written Dark Sun, The Making of the Hydrogen Bomb. What did you make of uh, Oppenheimer if you saw it? Overall, I liked it very much. I, I, many of my friends in the, in the bomb industry were disappointed that it wasn't focused on Los Alamos where he was, of course, famously the director. But, you know, it wasn't a book about Los Alamos. It was a book about Robert Oppenheimer. And that's a very different story. It was shaped for, in a, in a semi-fictional way, to make Oppenheimer kind of a Greek tragic hero and to make Louis Strauss the, the evil counterpart. Uh, you know, their paths were kind of the opposite of each other in many, many ways. But all that said, first of all, Killian Murphy is just a ringer for Oppenheimer. The poor yeah. man had had to lose a lot of weight. The joke around the, the set apparently was when he would come up was, have you had your almond for dinner today, Killian? Oh, my God. The poor man had to lose 20 pounds, and he was never a large guy anyway. But, uh, but, but he was superb as Oppenheimer. If you accept the fact that the real Oppenheimer was – rather more complicated and not nearly as nice. He was a man who, who often sniped at people and, and, and jumped on them if they made mistakes. I heard that from, from Hans Bethe, a Nobel laureate. Uh, he said, Robert uh, would, would call you out if you said something that was a mistake. And he said, of course, we all make mistakes. I mean, Bethe is the man who figured out how the sun works. So he was no slouch, but he said that didn't happen at Los Alamos. Oppenheimer turned himself into the world's best lab director. And I don't know that anyone else could have could have gotten that bomb together other than Oppenheimer, except, of course, for General Groves, who was the guy who actually ran the bomb program. People still seem to think that Oppenheimer ran the whole show. He didn't. He ran the laboratory where they designed and built the actual bombs. And that said, I tell you, the, the high point for me was when the bomb test in the New Mexican desert uh, demonstrated the phenomenon of how much faster light travels than sound. Because when the bomb exploded in the film and in real, the real world, the men who were 20 miles away watching the test through smoked glass uh, saw a giant flash of light and, and all sorts of swirling clouds. And then 20 seconds later, when the sound wave finally arrived, it just about blew them off there their perches and it just about blew us out of our chairs in the IMAX theater where we were watching the movie. That was fun. Yeah. In, its yeah, own in, in a way, I mean, maybe Oppenheimer is another version of an American sci scientist. Finally, um, Richard, lots of people when Oppenheimer came out, talked about this thing called an Oppenheimer moment, including uh, Christopher Nolan in terms of now artificial intelligence and AI weapons. There's an interesting piece written in The Atlantic by Charlie Warzel, the, the real, uh, in, the, in the context of the new Oppenheimer movie, the real lesson from the making of the atomic bomb. Is there a lesson in terms of 
our current infatuation with AI and the promise and threat that it's going to radically transform our world? I think so, but I don't know that it's parallel with the weapon of mass destruction. I think it's potential, like all tools, is that it can also be used for destructive purposes. Uh, and in that sense, there's a very large question mark looming on the horizon for all of us. I understand that a lot of people in the in the AI business have been carrying around copies of the making of the atomic bomb lately. I've certainly seen an uptick in the royalty sales, I'm happy to say, because they do see a parallel. But I don't know if you've played around at all with the existing AI programs that are available to, to we who are merely observers of all of this, but it's a very helpful program. I, it's like having a research assistant at hand, as long as you're aware that like living research assistants, it makes some dumb mistakes often. You have to be, stay on top of it. But uh, I don't know where it's going. And it's going to, I'm afraid I won't be around to see. I'm 86 years old, but I hope I'm around to see. I'd like to see what happens. This kind of transformation, and this really is a transformative technology, is probably at least as transformative as computers were. And that's saying quite a lot, but it's going to worm its way into all sorts of places, including the real problem of distinguishing reality from, from whatever you want to call it, fiction or, or I mean, that's, that's a serious problem that's coming down the road. Look at the actors in, in, in Hollywood being concerned that they're going to be replaced by, by uh, uh, artificial beings that have been scanned off their forms and then simply programmed to read the script the way the director wants it read. Lots to come in this field. It'll be interesting to see.